Go ahead and get our Bibles out to John chapter 12. As you're opening your Bibles, let me just uh, commend the prayer of Pastor Shane Hopkins to you this morning. If you're here and, and you're thinking, man, Sean, I really don't know how to pray like I should. How can I learn to, to pray better? Well, there are a bunch of different ways, but one of the simplest ways is just when you're here on a Sunday morning, listen to the way that your pastors pray for you. Listen to the way that they role model communication with God. If you don't do anything else other than whenever a pastor comes up into this pulpit on a Sunday morning to pray, if you just listen and pray intently along with them, I guarantee you communication with God will be simpler, easier, and more enjoyable in no time. Now, we're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 12. But before we start talking about chapter 12, I want to draw our attention all the way back to the beginning of John's Gospel. Because the theme that we're going to hit on this morning is a theme that John has been writing about, talking about, drawing our attention to, since all the way back in the very first chapter. In John chapter 1, verse 11, speaking of Jesus, John says this, He, being Jesus, came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Why? Why did Jesus' own people not receive him? Well, that is the question that we are going to answer from this morning's text. Now, as you study John's gospel, uh, it can be basically broken down into two halves. Sometimes this is referred to as the two books. Obviously, it's one book, but the way writing went in the ancient world, one book could have several books within it. We might just call them chapters. But it can be roughly divided into two halves. Now, the first half of John's gospel is called the Book of Signs. The Book of Signs. It's called the Book of Signs because for 11 chapters... John recounts the signs, that is, the divine demonstrations of power that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. There are seven signs in particular that John draws our attention to. These aren't the only seven signs, but they're the main seven signs that John wants us to see. But then, in John chapter 12, John begins to move away from the theme of signs into the theme of glory, namely, the glory of the cross. And this will be the theme of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 21. From here on out, John's gospel gets hot and heavy, and we are moving to the cross quickly. But before John moves away from this first half, this book of signs, he has to pause, he has to take a moment and answer a question that he knows would have been very important to his original audience. And that question is this. Why, even after so many signs, obvious manifestations of divine power, after so many miracles, why did his people refuse to believe in him? He feels like before he leaves this part of the book, he has to answer that question. And you can see that this is the theme that he's addressing in this morning's text if you just look at verse 37 with me. It says, though he, that's Jesus, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. In this morning's text, John will answer this question 
of unbelief. And he's going to do it from two different angles. That is, he's going to get at this issue of unbelief from two different perspectives. The first perspective is the divine perspective. John will begin by telling us the role that God himself plays in this unbelief, this refusal to accept Jesus. If God is sovereign over all things, including belief and unbelief, and guess what he is, then somehow, some way, God's sovereignty has to come to bear on this question. The second perspective that John is going to address is the human perspective. We're not fatalists. Although God is sovereign, the Bible clearly teaches human responsibility in all things. And so what John is going to do after he addresses the sovereignty question is he's going to address the human question. In what ways are these people responsible for their own unbelief? Those are the two perspectives that we will examine in this morning's text. So let's read it for ourselves, starting in verse 35 down to verse 33. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, help us to have eyes to see what your word is showing us this morning. We have the light. While it's open and available to us, God, teach us, cause us, to walk in the light, lest the darkness overtake us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got two points for you this morning, and we've already discussed them. The divine perspective, that's point one, and the human perspective, that is point two. So point number one, the divine perspective. Uh, A word of preparation before we get into point one. Point one is going to be a little dense, okay? We're going to have to do some thinking. We're going to have to put some elbow grease into the text to really understand what God is trying to say to us this morning. This should not feel that strange to us. What we're studying here is Holy Scripture. This is communication from the God of the universe. This is not chicken soup for the Christian soul, you see. 
If, if we come to God's word and we always just implicitly and easily understand it and make sense of it and see how it exactly applies to our life and situation, what we're reading is probably not revelation from God. It's probably just some self-help nonsense that's in the bestseller section of a Barnes and Noble. But because this is Christian scripture, because God is telling us things that are not immediately easy to grasp, we, we can have some confidence uh, that, that what, what we're encountering is something that's bigger than us. And the good news is, is we don't have to figure it out on ourselves, in a, uh, by ourselves. God, by his Holy Spirit, and with the help of teachers that he's given as gifts to the church, can help us understand. So I've spent all week studying this, trying to distill it down, simplify it, and come back and give it to you this morning, okay? So since I've worked so hard to do that all week, now I just want you to work hard and partner with me to understand what God's saying. Does that sound like a good deal? All right, so let's do this together. No big deal. Let's go back and just read verses 37 and 38 again so that it's fresh in our mind. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So, so here's what's happening. In verse 37, John says that Jesus' own people refused to believe in him. Then in verse 38, John begins to explain why. And John's first answer as to why Jesus' own don't receive him is a very interesting answer. John says that people don't receive Jesus so that. If you like to mark up your Bibles, go ahead and just go to that phrase, so that, and mark it, circle it, underline it, put a star around it, whatever you need to do. So that the prophecy of Isaiah would be fulfilled. And that word fulfilled, it can mean a bunch of different things in scripture, but for for this passage, it just means so that this prophecy would be proven to be true. And then what John does is he goes on and he quotes two different passages from Isaiah. The first passage that he quotes is from Isaiah 53. Now, we're going to get to Isaiah 53, but before you understand what's happening in Isaiah 53, you actually have to understand a little bit of what's happening in Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, God, through his servant Isaiah, is making a prophecy about the Messiah. Listen to the language that is used in Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now listen to this language and and tell me if if it isn't messianic, if it isn't kingly. He shall be high and lifted up, And he shall be exalted. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So here we see that the the, the king of kings is coming. The king that when he talks, all the other kings, they close their mouths. Okay, this is the Messiah, the one who's going to come and save the world. Then we turn over to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we begin to see this language right there in verse 1, the arm of the Lord. This is what John quotes directly in chapter 12, the arm of the Lord. Now, what, what is this arm of the Lord all about? Well, this is just a picture of God's power. The arm of the Lord is just a metaphor, a biblical metaphor that refers to God's ability to conquer his enemies. The arm of the Lord is a symbol that has everything to do with this question that John is addressing in this morning's text. Remember the context. 
The context is, why aren't people believing in these signs? What is a sign? A sign is a manifestation of divine power. The reason why John is using this verse in particular is because the arm of the Lord is a reference to signs. One of the ways that we can know that is uh, the most commonly used word for signs in the gospel is the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our English word dynamite from, right? It's a word that, that says a manifestation of power. Now, lest you think I'm just kind of playing word games and kind of trying to scrabble a couple of pieces together to make a whole, I can just show you this directly from Exodus 6. Listen to what the Lord says in Exodus 6. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Does does that seem familiar? I'm Jesus. I'm here to bring you out from under the burden of the Romans, right? Same kind of thing. I'm here to rescue you, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you, how? With an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. The arm of the Lord, divine power. The great acts of judgment that we know from Exodus, what are they? They're all the miracles. They're all the signs and wonders that the Lord performs as he rescues his people from Egypt. So, let's put it all together. Here's what the prophet Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 53. The Messiah will come with a manifestation of the power of God... And yet, his people will not receive him. That's what he says right here in verse 38 of John 12, quoting from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? Isaiah is saying, can't you see? God has put it on full display. And you still don't believe. That's what's happening here. But then John goes deeper. Look at verse 39. Therefore they could not believe. One may come along and examine the case of these unbelievers. And and you might try to explain their unbelief in a number of different ways. You might try to explain it rationally or superficially or intellectually or from a naturalistic perspective. You might say, well, they didn't believe because of this, that, or the third. But what John does is he comes and he cuts through all of those superficialities. He cuts through all of the worldly wisdom from all of the human perspective. He cuts all the way down, down, down to the bottom. And he says, at the very root of their unbelief, if you go down, down, down until you can't go down any further, the reason why they don't believe is because they cannot believe. Because God has not allowed them to believe. And then he quotes Isaiah 6 in verse 40. Therefore they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What's going on here? Right? What, what, is, what is John saying? What is Isaiah saying? Well, let's, let's go a little bit more. Verse 41 John's going to tell us why Isaiah said this. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, that is, the glory of Jesus, and spoke of him. 
Okay, we got a lot to unpack here. So let, let's start by just going to Isaiah 6, which we read together this morning. That was our call to repentance and our assurance of pardon. But let's just, let's just try to remember this account, okay? Isaiah finds himself one day being caught up in a vision. And in this vision, he is in the temple of God. And as he's in the temple of God, he, he beholds these creatures like the seraphim, and they got all these wings, and they're covering their eyes, and who knows, that must have been a trip, right, to be in that scenario. But that's just the, the first thing that catches his attention. The thing that pretty soon fills the frame of his experience is that Isaiah encounters the Lord. He encounters God with all of his holiness. And, and the, the train of the robe of the Lord fills the temple. And this is a symbol of how the holiness and the righteous presence of God fills out the entire universe. And, and when Isaiah sees this God, when he experiences the holiness of the Lord, he comes under a conviction that he's a sinner. He confesses his sin. The Lord sends the seraphim. The seraphim touches his lips with coal and he is now atoned for. He has been forgiven And then what does Isaiah do? He says these famous words, we know them well, here I am, send me, right? Isaiah says, listen, I've seen your glory. I've I've comprehended something of your holiness. And now I see my people lost, confused, uh, just living in unrighteousness and rebellion. And he says, send me and I will go and I will tell them about who you are. I'll go communicate your holiness to them. I will go and be their redeemer, their rescuer. And God says, okay. God says, I send you out. But before he sends Isaiah out, he tells him probably the most discouraging thing you could ever tell a missionary, which is what Isaiah is. He says, you're going to go preach and they're not going to listen. You're going to go out with the divine manifestation of power. The God of the universe is sending you out. And you're going to preach. And they're not going to listen. Why? Because he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. If you know anything about the New Testament, you know that it's not really as new as it's cracked up to be. There are some popular Bible teachers who insist that we unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Don't listen to them. The Old Testament is the foundation upon which the New Testament is built. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament directly some 280 times which doesn't even include all the illusions and all the prophecy fulfillments. 280 times. One of the most quoted verses from the Old Testament in the New Testament is this scripture from Isaiah chapter 6. And whenever this Old Testament scripture is quoted in the New Testament, it's always quoted for the same reason. To explain why people refuse to believe. So let me just give you some examples. Turn with me to Matthew 13. Just flip back from John to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. 
Here Jesus is explaining the purpose of parables to his disciples. We often like to say, well, Jesus spoke in parables so that people would understand him. You know, he was using stories to help people grasp his message because it was so deep it was difficult for them to grasp. That's not what Jesus says, not here in verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, from Isaiah 6, is fulfilled. You will indeed hear, but not understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Jesus says, why don't these people believe as I communicate these parables to them? Well, because God has sovereignly ordained that they not. Now, we can go other places as well. Look at Acts 28. Flip over to Acts 28 with me. Starting in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he, that is Paul, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced what he said, but others disbelieved. So there's that theme of unbelief again. Verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Here we see the same phenomenon again. Paul has come to these people And he's come to them with a divine demonstration of power. Not miracles in this case, but the proclamation of the gospel. A spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel. And as he's delivering this message to them, they're infighting amongst themselves. And Paul, as he's sitting back, he's done this a thousand times. He goes, yeah, you you guys are going to reject Jesus. And so before they leave, he gives them this word. Just like in Isaiah. God sent me to communicate the truth of the gospel to you and you will not believe. Why? Because God has ordained it to be so. Throughout the entire New Testament, this account from Isaiah 6 is used over and over and over again to explain unbelief. Now listen, this concept This idea that God is sovereign over unbelief. It may be controversial to us in 2022 because we've done a poor job being discipled in the scriptures in our American churches. But in the days of Jesus, the idea that God would harden the hearts of some in order to keep them from believing was not particularly controversial. People knew the Bible. They had heard the story over and over again. This was one of the most famous accounts in all of the Old Testament. This is something that God had been saying since long before the prophet Isaiah. Deuteronomy chapter 29, listen. Remember Deuteronomy right before the the people go into the promised land. With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those signs, and great wonders. You saw the arm of the Lord 
But to this day, listen to the language. To this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. As the Apostle John helps his readers make sense of this unbelief from the Jews, he's pointing to a phenomenon and saying, this is nothing new. The entire story of salvation has this theme running through it. God keeps some from believing with their hearts what they see with their eyes. Now listen, I know that this is a difficult doctrine. And if you're here this morning and this is the first time you've ever heard anything like this and it just sounds crazy to you, I've been there. That's what God's word can do to you when you've only kind of been dabbling in it. Just dipping your toes into the bathwater of God's word. The only real scripture you've read is when you open up a devotional for five minutes on the toilet before you go to work in the morning. Right? Raise your hand and raise it high. Share your testimony. If you have gone through an experience where you thought you understood the sovereignty of God and grace in the gospel until you read the Bible and then you had your world blown apart. Okay. This is a difficult doctrine. It does create for many of us more questions than it answers. But let's be clear, this is the plain teaching of Scripture. From Deuteronomy to Isaiah to John to Romans, which we read in our Scripture reading this morning, to the book of Revelation, God is clearly communicating the fact that He is sovereign over belief and unbelief. And at times, and for His own wise purposes, God does choose to harden the hearts of some. Uh, And if you come up to me after the service and you're like, hey, Sean, glad to be here, but uh, hey, I just don't agree with your interpretation of the scriptures. Well, I'll just say, friend, I didn't really interpret them. I just read them, you know. Now, uh, I don't want to end on that hard note, you know. That's what the Bible says. Take it or leave it. Although, that is what the Bible says. Take it or leave it. But, but we can say more than that. There's one thing in particular that I want to draw your attention to that I think may help your heart and may keep you from getting all wrapped around the axle this morning. What, what I want you to see here is that this morning's text is not primarily about the question of human free will. That's not what this text is about. This text is not primarily concerned with reprobation or predestination or election. No, friends, this text is primarily concerned with the trustworthiness of Scripture. That's what John is saying here, right? He says these things happened. These people didn't believe. God ordained their unbelief so that, ah, there's the phrase I told you to underline earlier, so that what? So that the prophecy the word of God that was spoken through Isaiah might be shown to be true. That is the main emphasis of this text. God said it, it happened. God said that the Messiah would be rejected, and wouldn't you know it, he was. Why? Because God's word is always true. So rather than spinning your wheels this morning trying to make sense of something that's bigger than you, Why not just focus on what the text is calling you to focus on? Why not revel in the glory of this text rather than get all hot and bothered about something that honestly you won't figure out until you get to heaven anyways? 
something else that might help you wrestle through this text. Consider what this text means for the reality of God's grace in your life, right? It is true that sometimes the Lord in his infinite wisdom and goodness and righteousness speaks a word of judgment against his creatures, a word that keeps them in the, in the dark. Scripture sometimes calls this a word of destruction. This is true. It must be acknowledged. It must be reckoned with. We must not try to swerve around it. But we cannot let this be the only word that we focus on because it's not the only word that God has delivered. As a matter of fact, it's not the most important word that God has delivered. It's not the most central word that God delivered. We don't call the gospel the bad news, the confusing news, the news about difficult doctrines having to do with God's sovereignty. We call the gospel the good news. Why? Because the defining characteristic of the word that God has spoken to humanity is a word of grace. It's a word of salvation. It's a word of mercy. It's a promise that he will save all those that he has called to himself. So if you are here today and you know Christ and you're struggling with what you're hearing from this text, rather than trying to in like an hour, try to unravel the mysteries of God's divine sovereignty and your human responsibility, why not just rejoice over the fact that the word that God spoke over you in eternity's past is a word of salvation? The promise that God made that he has fulfilled in your life is a promise to save you. You see, friends, in order for God's promise of grace to be fulfilled in you, a word of curse had to be spoken over Jesus. The one who never failed to believe. The one who never rebelled. The one whose eyes were pristine and clear in their apprehension of the glory of God. Jesus saw the arm of the Lord as clear as anyone ever, and he trusted completely in the Father while he was here on earth. And nevertheless, He died the death of a sinner. He died the death of a rebel. He suffered as if he could not see the glory of God at all. In order for you to receive mercy, Jesus had to receive wrath. In order for you to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, as if that isn't a joke. Does anyone here think that we're going to get to heaven on the last day and hear those words and be like, yeah, that makes sense. I was pretty good. I was pretty faithful. Yeah, you're really thankful to have me on your team, right, God? What? No, but you're going to hear that. Why? Because Jesus himself heard a word of judgment that he did not deserve. And now his perfectly righteous life, that he lived in complete obedience to the will of God, that life is credited to your account. You are unrighteous, but his righteousness becomes your righteousness. You want to talk about unfair? That's unfair. Yes, God has blinded the eyes of some. But if you are a Christian, he has given you eyes to see. Yes, God has hardened the hearts of many. But he has given you a heart of flesh. He took out your heart of stone. You think you could take out your own heart of stone? You can't do that. You can't fix your own heart problem. He did it though. Yes, it is okay to ask questions and and 
you know, earlier, if you come up to me afterwards and you say this, that, and the third, that doesn't mean that you can't come up to me afterwards and ask good questions. And if you do, I'll walk through it with you. I've done this a lot, (laughs) a lot. And I think God's word has more answers than we might even know. But if you come up and you ask about how the gospel puzzle pieces fit together, I think that's fine. But that shouldn't be our first response. That shouldn't be our only response. That shouldn't be our most significant response. Our first response should be adoration and praise. God chooses to keep some from believing, and yet here I am, and I believe. Why me? Why you? Do you have a good answer? Why you? You don't have an answer. Oh, because you're so good looking? False. Because you're so smart? False. Because you're so holy? False. Because you grew up in the church? Double false. That may be working against you in some capacities, depending on some of the churches y'all grew up in. Why you? Why do you believe? Your first response should not be doctrinal examination, but praise. Now let's look at point number two, the human perspective. Let's look at verses 42 and 43 again. Let's flip back from Acts to John 12. (coughs) Verse 42, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, there's a bit of a tension here uh, that needs to be addressed. I don't know if you, if you, if you caught it as you were reading through that. But uh, John says that these authorities, on the one hand, he says that they believed in Jesus. And then on the other hand, he says that they refused to confess their belief in Jesus publicly, which sounds like unbelief, right? So what's going on here? Well, in order to make sense of this, we need to understand what the word confess means, right? It says that they, they did not confess it. Well, what does that word confess mean? In the English language, when, when we hear the word confess, we are most often inclined to think of someone who is admitting to some form of guilt, right? He admitted that he killed the girl after five days of interrogation. He finally confessed, right? But in Scripture, to confess simply means to declare publicly. To declare publicly. So just turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6. So this is John the Baptist and his ministry. He's calling people to repent of their sins. And at this point, his ministry is gaining momentum, serious momentum. In verse 5 we read, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. What's happening here? Everyone standing around... John's saying, hey guys, it's time to repent. And then you go, oh yeah, I do need to repent. I am a sinner. And then you go down into the waters and you tell everyone who can hear you that you're a sinner and that you confess and repent of your sins. Right? This is a, a public declaration. You can see the same thing. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. 
Starting in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Ugh, man, so good. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Then we'll go a little bit further. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them, where? In the sight of all, right? So here we have the Spirit is moving, people are getting saved, and what happens? When they get saved, they go out and they make a public declaration. That's what it means to confess. Or you can just listen to Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession... In the presence of many witnesses. The confession was called a confession because it happened publicly, not privately. If you've ever been somewhere and they've done like some kind of gospel call and they go, every head bowed and and every eye closed and we're just going to have the music play, and, and if you just feel led to, to confess faith in Jesus, just, I just want you to put your hand in the air. Don't worry, no one's going to see you. Don't worry, just put your hand in the air. Well, I don't know what happened inside of anyone's heart in that scenario, but I know that there was no confession that took place, because a confession is a public declaration. You declare to yourself, to your family, to the church, to the watching world, to all of the angels and demons, to, the, to, to God himself and to Satan and hell, you say, this is true of me. That's what a confession is. Now, let's take this back to John chapter 12. What we have to remember, and if you haven't been with us all the way through John's gospel, this may not make a ton of sense, but just stay with me. In John's gospel, the word belief, it always signifies something suspect, right? Isn't that what we've been seeing through John's gospel? Whenever John says, and these people believed, they go on to act like people who don't believe, right? It's because the word belief in John's gospel always references something that's fickle. It's an emotional, uh, fleeting experience that people tend to have towards Jesus in the heat of the moment, right? Jesus comes along and he does a miracle and everybody goes, oh, we believe, Jesus goes out and he preaches a really good sermon. Everybody goes, we believe. But then Jesus says something or does something and scares everyone away. And all of a sudden, people's belief shows itself to be, well, not really belief at all. Now, in this morning's passage, here's what John is saying. So if you've been struggling to keep up, here's the bow for you. Okay, we're going to put a bow on it. In this morning's passage, John is telling us that after Palm Sunday, in leading up to the Passover, everyone in Jerusalem was so worked up with revolutionary fervor and messianic hope that even the authorities were getting swept up in the drama. Even the authorities were like, I don't know, man, this guy might be the guy. Maybe it's him. He could be the Messiah. I think I believe. But at the end of the day, However these authorities felt in their heart, whatever they said to one another in private, when the time came, they refused to go public 
with their faith. Now here's why this matters for you. A faith that refuses to go public is no faith at all. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that we must not only believe with our hearts, but also confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And I want to show you something from there. So turn with me over to to Romans chapter 10. Again, if you're a Bible marker, I want you to take take this time to, to mark something up so that you'll see it clearly whenever you come back to it in your devotionals or your Bible studies or whatever the case may be. Romans 10, (coughs) verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What I want you to see here, actually, well, let's keep going. Verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. What I want you to see here is that in verse 10, Paul makes these phrases synonymous. Believe and confess. You can mark those and put them together. They mean the same thing to Paul. And then heart and mouth. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. Then justified and saved. If you believe in your heart, you will be justified. If you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Do you see that? He's just saying the same thing with different words. This is Hebrew parallelism, but we won't get all off in the weeds about that. The point that we want to take home here from what Paul is saying is that without public confession, there is no salvation. That's the point. Your inward feelings at the end of the day just don't mean a whole lot. In our age, that seems crazy because in our age, our feelings are everything. If I feel it, it has to be true. If I feel it, it has to be right. If I feel it, you have to adapt your whole world to coincide and line up with my emotional experience. But friends, salvation, true belief, it is an objective fact of reality and your feelings have no bearing on it. Our feelings are fickle and our inward feelings are deceiving. Just consider the divorce rate in our country, right? Over 50%. And people get married because in the moment they feel a certain way towards someone. I love you. You're the most beautiful person in the world. You're the smartest, cleverest, funniest, cutest little thing I've ever seen. And you know what? I think I'd like to spend the rest of my life with you, right? And then things get hard. And we don't feel this. And this is not true of all divorces. I'm not trying to speak about all divorces. Some of us have been through some very terrible things. But we're not talking about that right now. I'm just talking about in general, why do people get divorced? Because you just stop feeling the same way. And when you stop feeling the same way, you just go, well, I guess I'm going to give up on this relationship. Now, for those who choose not to get divorced, who say, you know what, I'm going to power through and I'm going to keep my promise, what they very often end up finding is that those feelings come back. People who have been married for a long time, they've done this. They've been on the feelings roller coaster. And they can tell you better than anyone that the way that I feel is by far not the best judgment of reality. My feelings are fleeting. They are fickle. They are deceiving. 
So you cannot trust in your private feelings when it comes to how you think about Jesus and whether or not that means that you're saved. You may be inclined towards Jesus right now. Yeah, I like Jesus. Yeah, I'm on board with Christianity. But what happens in 20 years in this country where to follow Jesus means you can't access your bank account? I'm not saying that that's definitely going to happen, but I am saying it's not off the table. And what if it does happen? What will your private feelings mean then? Will you still be able to stand up and follow Jesus and say, I believe? I bring this up as an example because it's, it's just right here in the text. John says that these leaders didn't believe or they wouldn't confess their belief because they were afraid. They were afraid that their belief was going to cost them something, Right? It says that they feared what the Pharisees would do. What would the Pharisees do? Put them out of the synagogue. And we've already talked about this, but let's just review it. To be put out of the synagogue for a Jew was a big deal. It was a loss of all of your social status, a loss of your potential business relationships, a loss of family. It was a huge, significant social blow, especially if you're an authority. You're not just in the synagogue. You're running the synagogue. Life is good for you. You don't want to give that up, do you? For this guy, Jesus? Friends, we're all put in that same kind of situation with Jesus a thousand times in our walk. You don't want to be the guy in the office that makes things uncomfortable, right? You don't want to do that. You got it good. People like you. When you come into the break room, talk is easy. Your boss seems to be on board. And he's going to tell that dirty joke. Just laugh at it, you know? It may not be something as drastic as you won't be able to access your bank account if you stand up and follow Jesus, but every day we face this kind of issue. And John, he, he knows that. And, and later in his ministry, as he's writing 1 John, which is his, his, his epistle, not his gospel, he says this in chapter 4. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus, and that word confess is significant, whoever confesses, that is, publicly declares, even in the face of trial, and persecution. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. John is not saying that every person who says, I believe in Jesus, is a Christian. What he's saying is, there's no such thing as salvation certainty this side of heaven. But if you want to get as close as you can really get to certainty about the state of someone's soul, put them in a really tough, dark, scary situation where to stand up for Jesus means you'll lose everything. And if they stand up for Jesus and they still publicly confess him, you can be pretty confident that they know the Lord. Because it's obvious that they value God above all else. And isn't that really the heart of this issue? If we go back to John chapter 12... You follow the logic that's employed here, and it says, For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for. So it's not just fear. Fear is the first level down. That's the first issue. But underneath the issue of fear of man, there's another issue. Well, what is the issue? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Quite simply put, they value this world. They value human beings. They value glory for themselves above all else. And Jesus says, that's not going to do. It's not enough. 
If you want to really confess me, even when it costs you something, you have to love me more than you love anything else in this world. Because only if you love me more will you actually be able to lose those other things that you care about. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Whoever acknowledges me before men, that's the same language of confession, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, talking to you, religious authorities, you're you're not willing to stand up and say something about Jesus publicly, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Jesus says, if you're not going to go public for me, I'm not going to go public for you. In this morning's text, the authorities do not go public with their faith. But here's the thing. Here's what I want everyone in this room, if you've been struggling to pay attention, if if I've lost you, I want you to just come back to me now. If you only get the next two minutes of what I'm going to say, it is the most important two minutes of your life. Every single soul Every single human being that has ever lived and that ever will live will confess Jesus as Lord. They may not do it now, but they will do it. Philippians chapter 2, therefore God has highly exalted him. He came as a suffering servant, now he's highly exalted, and he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow. And in case you're wondering if there are any exceptions to this, he says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess. Notice the language. Every tongue will confess. That is, every tongue will say publicly that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, there's a wrong way that you can hear that. The wrong way for you to hear that this morning is to say, okay, so it's all going to work out in the end. We're all going to confess it one day, so no stress today. I'm just going to kind of do my thing today, and tomorrow, maybe when I die, I go before the Lord, I'll bow the knee and I'll confess. No, friends. That's not the way it works. The gospel tells us that we have been called today in this life to glorify God by confessing his lordship right now. And if we confess it now, the high king of heaven will receive us into his family as friends, as children. That's what we see in verse 36. Go to verse 36. It says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Do it now while you have it, while the light is available to you. The implication of this is that one day the light will not be available to you, you will not be able to walk in it, and you will not be able to become a son of God. Friends, if we don't confess him now and receive him as his children, as his friends, one day we will confess it as his conquered enemies. But it's not too late. Today is the day. You have the light. You've heard the light. Do you think you're here by accident? You could have been anywhere. It's a Sunday morning, and yet here you are in this old church building with this small congregation, with this crazy preacher. Why? 
I don't know the ultimate answer to that, but I know part of the answer is so that God could broadcast the light of his son Jesus Christ out to you this morning. And so that while you have it, you can make the decision today to walk in it. Well, Sean, what about all that sovereignty stuff? And God, isn't God sovereign over my decision? You can't control that. You don't know about that. You can't understand that. You can't make sense of that. The only thing that you can really understand is whether today, right now, you are in the light or in the darkness. And if your heart so feels inclined to move out of the darkness and into the light, do not wait. Do it now. Do it today. Find someone after the service. Come talk to us. We'll pray with you. We'll walk with you through this. Even if you're very, you have social anxiety, you don't want to talk to anybody, go home and talk to God and make the decision today to enter into the light. Now, <clears throat> this is the part of the sermon in closing where a preacher might typically hammer the congregation. This is where we bring down the the conviction, right? Because at the end of the day, what all this boils down to is a disordered love, right? They refused to follow Jesus because they loved other things more than they loved Jesus. And, and the easy application here for the church would be for me to say, well, what do we love more than Jesus? In what ways are we loving the world more than we're loving Christ? And listen, that's not wrong. It's good. I'm not afraid to do it. We talk like that all the time in our sermons. But I got to tell you, as I was figuring out how to end the sermon this week in, in, uh, in preparation, I just started thinking about our congregation. I always keep a, a copy of our membership directory on my desk. I use it to pray for you guys in my, in my quiet times. Um, and I use it in my sermon prep. And I, I opened up the directory and I started going through, just looking at, at, at all the names there. And I gotta be honest with you, I see a super abundance of grace in our lives when it comes to this theme right? Fearing God more than we fear man because we love the glory of Christ more than we love our own glory. I, I know that we're not perfect and I know that we have a lot of room to grow, but I just see so much evidence of grace. As I look through our membership directory, I saw story after story after story of our members demonstrating that they fear God more than they fear man. And you don't get to hear all the stories. We share some of them. That's a part of what we do in our members meetings. We have people stand up and, and share certain things that they're going through and victories that they've had. But I'm the pastor. I'm one of four pastors. And as a senior pastor, I probably hear more than the other pastors. And sometimes that's tough, but sometimes it's a grace because I have seen the myriad different ways that we have received God's grace in this area, ways that we have demonstrated that we love Christ more than anything else in this world. I've seen members lose family over the glory of Christ. I've seen members take heat on their jobs and put their careers in jeopardy because they fear God more than they fear man. I've seen marriages strained. I've seen reputations damaged. I've seen money essentially flushed down the toilet because members of our church said, come what may, I'm going to confess Christ boldly in public. And so in light of this grace, I would like to just end our sermon on a note of exhortation. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. <clears throat> Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and following. <clears throat> 
When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's my word to you this morning, friends, brothers, sisters, members of this church. Continue in the faith. Continue to fear God more than you fear man. Continue to cherish the glory of Christ above the glory of anything that this world has to offer you. And I want you to know that if you've had some success in this, to not grow complacent. Do you think that fighting the fear of man is like a one and done thing? You're going to be a Christian for, let's say, 50 years on this earth, and there's going to be one time where you're put in a scenario where you're going to have to choose Jesus above somebody else? No, this is going to be a constant thing, which is why, as we see in verse 22, it says, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Not one tribulation, not one test, not one challenge. Many tribulations. Ugh, I hate it so bad. You know, I just hate it, man. I just, you finish with one trial and by the skin of your teeth, you make it through. God was kind. He sustained you. You got past it. You have the victory. And then you're feeling good. And you know that there's another trial coming. And it hurts to think about it. But it is life. It is reality. We will face many tribulations. We will experience this kind of test. God will test our hearts to show us what we love more him or the world, he's going to do that over and over and over and over again until we go home. And so we must make sure that we continue in the faith. Let's do that together. Let's help each other make it home. Let me pray. Father God, uh, our brother Shane prayed for us this morning that we would receive your word in faith. And Lord, we've done that. I've, I've done my best to say what is true and right and good from your holy scriptures. And your people have been attentive. And they have been hungry. And they have been challenged. And by faith we believe that they've been strengthened and renewed. So God, send us back out into the world full of vigor and spiritual life with eyes ready to see the glory of the gospel of your son Jesus Christ in all things. Amen.